Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me mention them because I have been using and loving and Instagramming their products for years. They have an amazing instant mushroom coffee. Hear me out before you think it's weird. I know mushroom coffee doesn't sound good. It's not only the best instant coffee I've ever tried, it's also pretty high up on the list of best coffee I've tried. It's cheaper than coffee shop coffee and it's so convenient because it's so portable and it tastes so much better. But it isn't just ordinary coffee. It has superfood mushrooms like lion's mane, cordyceps, and chaga mushrooms. And these mushrooms have some big health benefits and especially immune benefits. I personally especially love them for the energy and the mental clarity without the jitters from traditional coffee. And did I mention how good it tastes? So I always take these instant coffee packets with me when I travel. And I also always drink it at home these days now that they have a big tin that lasts about a month so I don't have to open a little packet every day. Some friends of ours recently traveled for three months carrying only the backpacks on their backs and they brought an entire three month supply of this instant coffee in their bag that had limited space. In other words, this coffee beat out a pair of jeans for how important it was to make it in the bag. It's that good. And of course, if you aren't a caffeine person, they also have a variety of mushroom teas and other products that don't have the coffee, so you can get the benefits without the caffeine. And I love them so much that I reached out and they agreed to give a discount to my listeners. So go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama to get 10% off. That's foursigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama. This episode is sponsored by Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. If you love the benefits of bone broth, but don't love the time it takes to make and how tough it can be to find quality bones to make broth, Kettle and Fire is for you. Their bone broth is a regular staple in my kitchen these days, and it's what I use to create the recipes in my new bone broth ebook. So they only use bones from 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones or antibiotics. Their broth is also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. You can find them at many Whole Foods on the West Coast, and you can also order online and get a discount at kettleandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. Again, that's kettle and A-N-D fire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. Hello, and welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I am here with one of the smartest people I know, and I can't wait to share her work with you. Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson is the Adjunct Associate Professor of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at the University of Rochester and an expert in the psychology of eating. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Bright Line Eating, The Science of Living Happy, Thin, and Free, as well as president of the Institute for Sustainable Weight Loss and founder and CEO of Bright Line Eating Solutions, which is a company dedicated to helping people achieve health and vibrancy and permanent weight loss. And her program utilizes some cutting edge research that we're gonna talk about today to explain how the brain blocks weight loss and how to fix that problem. I have been personally following her program for the past few months. Um, It can fit really any dietary restrictions and I have been blown away with how well it works. So we are gonna dive into the science and the practical in this interview. And I know that you're gonna love Susan. Susan, welcome, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks Katie, I'm so glad to be here with you. I think it's going to be an awesome interview and more of a conversation because we've talked before and I know I have a tremendous amount of respect for for your work. But to understand your approach, I think it's really important for people to understand your story because you have an impressive academic background, really impressive professional background. But in my opinion, the most impressive part is your personal background and what you've overcome. So if you don't mind, take us through your personal story and how you got here. 
Sure, sure. And I'm totally chuckling because, yeah, all those drugs I did are so impressive. I know. Yeah, I was kind of a wreck as a kid in a lot of ways. Like I, I, I got into drugs really early. And, you know, my my work now is about food. Right. So I see the signs of food addiction uh, way back in my youth, but I didn't think of it as that then. And I don't know because I think a lot of kids are fixated on food, but I certainly was. And I was lying about sugar, sneaking it, hiding it. And I was fixated on other kinds of food too. It wasn't just sugar. And I learned how to cook amazingly from a really young age. And, um, and I developed a weight problem. And, you know, I weigh less now at the age of 40, turning 43 here than I did when I was 11 years old. So, you know, I wasn't an obese kid, but I was a heavy kid. And when I was an early teenager, I guess there was a point, Katie, I don't know if you can remember a point like this in your early teens where all of a sudden body image like dawned on you where you became aware of your body size. For me, that happened at the age of like 13, 13, 14 is when that shift happened for me. I'm grateful that I was spared from it until then. And at the age of 14, I did mushrooms, which was my first drug experience. And I had an amazing time, bonded with the people I was doing it with incredibly. And I lost seven pounds in one night doing that. And like the penny dropped for me. I was all, I was, I was like, I'm going to do this every chance I get. Like, this is it for me. And, um, thus proceeded six years of using drugs to, you know, get high, bond with people, escape from life and control my weight. And, um, funny enough, I, I, I graduated to worse and worse drugs. Crystal meth was a big problem for me in my middle teenage years, eventually cocaine and then eventually crack cocaine. I dropped out of high school, burned my life to the ground, didn't have a place to live. Um, became a call girl. Uh, yeah, really pretty brutal existence there, especially around, uh, 18, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. Those were hard years for me. And, um, I, got clean and sober when I was 20. Miraculously, mercifully, I got taken to a 12-step meeting on a first date by a cute guy. He took me to a, to a meeting on, a, on our first date. It was just the most bizarre thing. And that morning, I'd woken up in the crack house feeling like I needed, you know, I had a moment of clarity where I needed to change my life. I knew in that moment that if I, if I didn't get up and get out of there right then, that that's all I was ever going to be. So I got up and I walked out the door and that night that guy happened to take me to a meeting and I dove into the 12 steps and I dove into recovery and I haven't had a drink or a drug for, you know, since I was 20 years old. So, you know, coming up on 23 years and, and I, I knew I would get fat when I stopped using drugs and I did, I backed on a ton of weight really fast. It was almost overnight. It felt like I put on 40 pounds and there were, there were more to come. And, um, through my twenties, I became obese and, tried everything. At that point, I had an addiction framework. Like I was thinking of myself as a recovering addict, alcoholic. And so I, I recognized my food addiction really easily. Um, that didn't mean that I could do anything about it, though. I marched myself down to a 12-step program for food. And the magic of just, you know, immediate abstinence didn't happen for me with food like it did with drugs and alcohol. And that started years and years and years of tinkering and figuring and jiggering and what I've eaten or not eaten, whether I'm on my plan or off my plan and trying exercise and not exercise, you know, all of the rigmarole. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And I got fatter and fatter. And I was doing everything I could to address that. I finally did find a 12-step program that worked for me that had really clear boundaries around food. And I lost my weight when I was 28, my excess weight, 28, 29. And I've been, you know, in a right-sized body now for 
yeah, coming up on 14 years, um, which does statistically put me in the top. Like nobody does that. Nobody goes from obese to slender and stays there for 14 years. It's very rare. So I, it's, I'm statistically in the top one one hundredth of one percent of successful weight loss maintainers. Um, and uh, my professional life sort of really did start after I got clean and sober, even while I was monkeying around with food and binging on cookie dough and, you know, starting over and this diet, that diet, even while I was doing all that, I was still academically real successful. I, I went back to community college and then transferred to UC Berkeley and got straight A's there and spoke at the graduation and got my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences, I guess, in 2003 did a postdoc in Sydney, Australia from 2003 to 2005 and started really studying what happens in the brain, like the brains of people like me. Why, how, why do our brains go so off, so far off the rails? And um, became a tenured psychology professor and started teaching a college course on the psychology of eating. And um, that sort of brings us up to the present day and the birth of Brightline Eating, you know, where I realized that I, I had some information that that it could really help a lot of people. And I had a moment in my morning meditation felt very much like that moment of clarity in that crack house, actually, that moment that said, you got to do something. And the message this time was, you got to write a book called Bright Line Eating. And I, Katie, I didn't even know where those words came from. I'd never heard them before or thought them before. Um, but they came to me in my meditation as a book title. You have to write a book. It was a mandate, really. You have to write a book called Bright Line Eating. It could help so many people. And in that morning meditation session, I felt and was like pulsing with the waves of the prayers of all the people on that merry-go-round of trying to lose weight and trying this and trying that and counting the points and counting the calories and counting the grams and, you know, the macros and the, you know, the apps and the, the, the reps and the sets and the miles and the, all of that stuff. And just how, how, you know, kind of the path that I'd found and the, and the information that I knew could help so many people. And um, yeah, and kind of that was that was uh, January 26th of 2014, and the rest is kind of history. So there, there it is in a nutshell. There, girlfriend. Yeah, your story is so amazing, and I think anyone listening, hopefully, not too many of them can really understand the experience of dealing with drugs. <laughs> but one thing you said, right? you said uh, you were felt like you were doing everything you could to lose the weight, and nothing was working. And I think a ton of people can relate to that because I think that is a common feeling, especially for mothers who have had babies and then struggled to lose the baby weight. It's almost this frustration, almost even a panic because you truly feel like it's out of your control. You can't do anything. And so even people who may not associate with having quote unquote addictions, I think that is an important key. And so let's talk about bright line eating. This is the system that you have figured out um, that basically the science, if you look at it, it's working when nothing else is working. So what is bright line eating for someone who's never heard of it? Yeah, thanks, Katie. And I do think that that's a really common shared experience because it is maddening. Our brains are blocking us from losing weight. And it's it to, to own a brain like that and not have kind of learned about why it's happening, it very much feels like this ridiculous um, awfulness of like, why can't I take off these pounds? I can do everything else in my life, right? I mean, I could run a marathon. I could get a PhD. I could raise a happy family. And I couldn't, you know, shed X number of pounds. Like I couldn't stop eating ice cream at night when I really wanted to actually stop eating ice cream at night, like very bizarre. So bright line eating, bright, well, bright lines, bright lines. I didn't make up that term. It's a legal term initially. Bright line rules in, in law are clear standards that apply, that are applied every time to produce consistent results, um, unambiguous boundaries. And so in psychology, the term has been co-opted as uh, a barrier that you put up to shape your behavior um, where there's a no exceptions policy. 
It's just, you know, like an alcoholic in AA doesn't drink alcohol no matter what. It doesn't matter if it's New Year's Eve. You know, if you're sober, you're sober. You have a bright line for alcohol. So that's that's the notion of a bright line. And I think just even that, getting that term out into society is helpful because I know some people who need a bright line for their ex-boyfriend, right? <laughs> or for Facebook after 10 p.m. or for you know, whatever, we all, bright lines are a helpful concept. And so applied to food, the four bright lines are sugar, flour, so no sugar, no flour, um, meals, so eating discrete meals as opposed to grazing or snacking. Um, For most people, that's three meals a day. The bright line isn't three meals a day, though, because some people do medically need a different number of meals than that or schedule wise or whatever. But I find 95% of people are, are best served by three meals a day. Um, and then quantities, which means bounding your quantity. So when you're going to eat three times a day, you're not going to eat three troughs a day or three little tiny bird, you know, shavings a day. You're going to eat three precise quantities uh, meals per day, um, which you can bound in different ways with a digital food scale, with a one plate rule. There's different ways to apply the quantities bright line. But um, suffice it to say, you're not going to eat your food and then go back for more and then go back for more and just call that a meal, right? Like you're going to, it's going to be sort of a bounded uh, experience eating the meal. Uh, and that's it. You know, th- those are the four bright lines. And uh, that's kind of how we roll on bright line eating. Yeah. And I love it because. I I know like a lot of my listeners come from different food backgrounds as far as some have allergies, some have kids who have allergies, some have autoimmune disease that dictates they can't eat tomatoes, whatever it is. And that's why when I found Bright Lines, I was like, I've got to interview her because whether you are vegetarian or autoimmune or paleo, any of these actually can fit within the framework of Bright Lines, um, which is the beauty of it. And I love also the your addiction story, because like you said, you can cold turkey give up alcohol and you can cold turkey give up drugs, but you can't not eat. Um, so you have kind of like figured out a way to create boundaries that work that take out the stress. And to me, that's the biggest key. You take out the stress and that uncertainty and that frustration and panic feeling because they're very clear lines. Um, you talk about also the susceptibility scale. So can you talk about what this is and how it relates to the way that someone may need to use bright lines? Yeah, totally. So the susceptibility scale is a scale from one to 10 that tells you how susceptible your brain is to the pull of addictive foods. So our food supply these days is laced with addictive foods, um, processed foods, sugar, flour primarily. And um, not every brain is equally susceptible to that. So this is now sort of addiction 101. Um, There are a lot of misconceptions about addiction. One of them is that addiction is in the substance. So heroin, for example, people think of heroin as being just addictive across the board, that anyone taking enough heroin over a long enough period of time becomes hopelessly addicted. And that's just not true, Katie. Like the body will become, you know, will adapt to it. So there will be some tolerance and some withdrawal if you go off it. But for a lot of people, the minute they get a chance to go off that, let's say they were given a Vicodin prescription after a surgery, right? For a lot of people, they can't wait to get off that Vicodin, even if their body is has developed tolerance to it. Um, for other people, they become pillheads after a surgery like that, right? That exposure to that Vicodin sets up a sort of snowball for them that's then very, very hard to recover from. So addiction is not actually in the drug. It's in the brain. Some research shows, this is true for humans and true for rats, that about a third of people have highly addictable brains. A third of people have moderately addictable brains, and a third of people are not addictable at all. 
you can give them, it doesn't matter how much alcohol or cigarettes or caffeine or heroin you give them, um, they're going to moderate it and or get off it at the soonest opportunity. They're just not addictable. So true of rats too. So the susceptibility scale has to do with food. Now, an addictable brain is an addictable brain, but the substance you get addicted to depends on a cue reward association that builds up over time. So your brain has to learn that this substance delivers a hit. And it's all the cues that predict that reward that kind of feed into that, right? So for example, I have a highly addictable brain. I'm a 10 on the susceptibility scale. Some people like to say 10 plus, plus, plus on the susceptibility scale. And I've been addicted to all kinds of things. I mean, they're long list. <laughs> I've, I've been a card carrying member of five different 12-step programs, um, but I'm not addicted to shopping. And some people are for sure. And I'm not addicted to gambling, never have been. And some people are for sure. Um, because those behaviors um, or processes just, I've never kind of just gone down that path. I'm sure I could be, you know, given enough positive experiences, but fluorescent lights kind of give me a headache in the mall. It's like not, I just don't like being there. So I leave and I, I never kind of got the, the hit from it. So with food, some of us get addicted to food and the susceptibility scale um, in particular tells you kind of you know, what type of approach is likely to work for you, especially if you've got pounds to shed, because if you underestimate your brain's um, susceptibility to addictive foods, you might be trying a path that's really not tailored to how your brain works, like the one cookie experiment or the moderate serving of ice cream experiment. If you're high on the susceptibility scale, that's that's not going to serve you. Right. So it's helpful to know where you're at. For sure. And it makes so much sense. Like I look at even just my own family in hindsight and my mom, I think would probably be about as low as you could be on the food susceptibility scale. She's always, she's been 118 pounds since she got married. She had two kids, went right back down to it and has never really cared that much about food. Like she eats a salad at every meal at the beginning because she loves it. And she's like, eh, dessert. Like she may have a piece of chocolate at Christmas or something like she just doesn't like it. And that's certainly not the case for most people in today's world. But I think people really have a tendency to beat themselves up for being food susceptible because it feels like it's a character flaw or a fault. And you've written about this, but I think this is super important to understand because at least for me, um, understanding this helps to give yourself a break and to realize there's a biological reason instead of you're just not strong enough or whatever. So both of us are biologically pretty high on this susceptibility scale, in fact, as high as we can be. So can you explain why the body has the susceptibility to food in the first place? And then from a logical perspective, I would think it seems like this actually would be a good thing in the in his throughout history in an evolutionary perspective. Um, in fact, you're talking about how it, this susceptibility of addiction actually has an important biological perspective. So can you explain that just for someone who maybe is beating themselves up and thinking it's just that they're not strong enough or they it's a character flaw? Yeah, totally. Um, you're so right, Katie, that that what it is in the brain that makes someone susceptible um, really was an advantage, pretty much. So um, what makes someone, first of all, it's, it's, it's largely genetic. Um, it's not entirely genetic. There are studies showing that uh, well, okay, let's talk about the gen genetics first. If you take if you take non-addictable rats and you breed them with non-addictable rats, you always get baby non-addictable rats. And likewise, if you breed the addictable ones and the addictable ones, they have baby addictable rats. Um, so it's it's strongly genetic. But if you take non-addictable rats and you breed them together, so you get a litter of non-addictable babies, and then you start exposing them to certain kinds of stressors during their upbringing. So for example, you rip them away from their mother and their litter mates and you raise them in isolation, which mimics um, child abuse, you know, um, 
you you will turn a significant portion of those ones into addictable rats. Or if you make their food supply uncertain. So again, sort of another food, uh, another source of stress and fear-based childhood, right? Where you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Now you also can turn a, a significant portion of those into addictable rats. So there's there's a genetic basis and then environmental um, factors that play in as well. Um, which, of course, you know, is poignant for those of us who have or know people who've had really, you know, challenging childhoods, you know, and then you think of how much more addiction is in play there. Anyway, so what it is in someone's brain that makes them addictable is a heightened sensitivity and draw towards the cues that predict those rewards. So like the precursors to the reward, the 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 signposts, the things that let you know it's coming. And what that is, is it's basically a draw or a, a pull toward the advanced warning that something's about to happen. So for example, um, someone who has a highly addictable brain would be the first to notice that the bushes were rustling in a certain way meant that a rattlesnake was imminent or you know, a bobcat or something like that, or that the clouds looking a certain way meant rain was coming or not coming. Those are the cues that predict certain types of rewards or in, in or predators, you know, certain types of events. In our society, being drawn towards the cues that predict rewards means that if you are used to stopping by a vending machine at work at a certain time of day, um, that time of day becomes a cue that predicts that reward. And all of a sudden, it's really hard not to do that like that you're drawn towards that, that time of day pulls you toward the vending machine. It means that um, if you drive a certain way, you get pulled toward a drive-through, you know, because you have that habit. Or if you have a certain emotion, now you're pulled towards the foods that you've always eaten when you have that emotion and you get into a cycle of emotional addictive eating. So, yeah. And then visual cues, sensory cues, you know, um, it makes parties and special occasions that much harder. Um, all of a sudden, if you've got this this uh, draw towards these cues um, in our environment, all kinds of things, you know, like television commercials with the chocolate swirling and all of it. Right. Um, our society is practically one nonstop march of cues that predict food rewards, essentially. And that's one of the things that makes it so, so hard to lose weight in our society, that we have an environment that's set up to be a curse, essentially, to the addictable brain, because they're just surrounded by all these cues that have become the, the precursors to food rewards for them. Yeah, that's so interesting. And also such an important point, I felt like as a parent to realize, um, my husband and I made a decision early in our marriage that we were never going to created a, a situation where happy feelings or holidays were always tied with food. So we le lean much more towards the experiences for birthdays and like, let's go to the jump house or let's go climb at the climbing gym or something that's fun, that's experience-based instead of birthday equals cake or happiness equals cake. Um, but that's really interesting because I could see that becoming, you know, a really big problem for people if their happiness was associated with a food cue like that. That's so powerful, Katie. And I, you make me want to have that conversation with my husband. <laughs> because it's really hard not to do that, right? In our society, that's exactly, and e you know, even if you do that inside the house, odds are, uh, and I was about to use like a, a very non-bright line phrase, dollars to donuts, <laughs> the, 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 the birthday parties of your kids' friends, right, are all going to be, you know, at the bounce house with pizza and cake. So it's, it's, it's hard to, as a parent, 
um, work against the tide, you know, of our current food environment. But I think we can do a lot. And that's awesome that you have that. And, um, and it's really hard to do otherwise, because our society really is organized around addictive foods, sugar and flour foods being available at every celebratory event and being pushed and expected and mandatory at every celebrated event. It makes it tough. It does. And I mean, even it offends people highly sometimes when you turn down treats, or I'm sure you've had that experience on holidays. If oh, you don't yeah. eat the pie or whereas on the one hand, we're looking at the stats that our kids are going to face as adults and their autoimmune disease and cancer and heart disease and all these problems. Diabetes. Yeah. One third of kids are going to have diabetes. Uh, half of kids of color are going to have diabetes. That's just, I mean, that's, that's jaw gobsmacking, jaw dropping, like unreal. It is. And then on the other hand, we have every bank, every anywhere they go, they're being given candy or a treat or it's <laughs> right. cool for making good grades. Like, congratulations. Now you get to have a higher risk of diabetes. Like everywhere they go, it's and it really is an uphill battle. But I hope that with people listening and people like you explaining this, eventually we will make a difference. Um, I want to go back to willpower, though, because it seems like a lot of diets in today's world, they leave the willpower part alone. Like that should just be an assumption that you can follow this diet and that it's all willpower. And obviously you can't, that's your, your fault. But you have a different take on this. So can you delve into the willpower gap as you explain in your book and why this is important and how maybe this is ma making it really hard for some people listening to lose the weight? Yeah, totally, Katie. So, so first of all, you're so right that I think a lot of um, diet fitness programs, they basically say, look, here's what you eat and here's what you don't eat. And here's, you know, how you structure your workouts and ready, set, go. And then you're totally left on your own to manage the long-term execution of that. So it's just assumed, like you said, that your willpower is going to show up for you at all the clutch moments um, to keep you in line if you want it badly enough, right? That's the assumption is if you really want this and if you've got the moral fiber and the gumption and the self-control and whatever, um, then you'll do it this time. And we all kind of like I fell into that. I believed when I was starting a diet that this time I was going to make it work, that I was so laser focused on the huge, desperate, clear desire for this desired outcome that I wanted to take off this weight finally. And I was ready to turn over that leaf and there was nothing that was going to stop me. And yet, you know, and I would, I would lose a few pounds, you know, I would definitely lose a bunch of weight. And for me, I never got to my goal. Um, somehow along that path, I would get stymied and, and it really does have a lot to do with the willpower gap. So the reality is that willpower doesn't work in the brain the way people think it does. It's governed by a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. And that part of the brain, unfortunately, has a lot of work to do. It's got a big job. It's got willpower to, to delegate out. And then it also governs your ability to be persistent on tasks that you'd rather quit, like, you know, um, keeping going on that Excel spreadsheet or whatever. Um, if you'd really rather leave work and go to the movies or something, you've got to kind of stay there and be persistent. It governs your regulation of your emotions, like the effort it takes to do stuff basically is what it governs. So if you've got kids, <laughs> I know you, you know, there's a wellness mama podcast. So I'm assuming a lot of your listeners have kids kids, you know, I'm just saying mother of three, they can be pretty frustrating, right? Like you don't, in my world, like I don't usually get to say exactly the first thing that's on my mind to my kids. I kind of got to soft pedal it and take a deep breath over it sometimes, right? And all of that regulation requires our willpower. Now that the challenge is that it's a battery pack that gets, um, you know, drained in about 15 minutes of work. 
and making decisions. That's another thing that drains it. So checking email, for example, sitting in traffic, checking email, being with our kids, and all of a sudden our willpower is empty. And it the anterior, to make it worse, the anterior cingulate cortex is perhaps the part of the brain that is the most vulnerable to glucose fluctuations, which means that if we haven't eaten in a while, it's going to com- be completely sluggish and offline for us. So you put all this together and you can see why it's really ridiculous to assume that you're going to make the right choice of what to eat on a Friday night after sitting in traffic when your kids are you know, crawling up the walls and now you've got to make some kind and you haven't eaten in four hours. And now it's some, now you were magically going to say, great, I can't wait to take all the vegetables out of the fridge. Let's make a salad, right? It's like, honey, let's order a pizza, you know, and you just fell into the willpower gap. So basically any, any plan of eating that relies on you to make the right decisions in clutch situations um, regarding your food and stick to the plan is destined uh, dooming you to failure. Like it just doesn't work that way. It's not going to happen. The brain was not designed to do that. It's not going to do that for you. It's not. Assume it's not. I think that's so freeing actually like to just understand that and to realize that there's a reason. Like for instance, when I got diagnosed with Hashimoto's, it was actually a freeing moment for me because I finally understood it biologically made sense, all these symptoms I was having. And now there was a plan of action. And I think that's what bright lines in the book and reading it did for me was give me that okay I understand now this makes sense and now I can conquer it because I know what I have to do and I want to talk about this a little bit more and delve into the relationship between weight loss and self-love because I get so many questions from people and it seems like there's a couple different camps those who think if they just lose the weight then they're going to love themselves and be happy which I don't think is true but I also think there's a whole big segment of people including me for a long time who look in the mirror and they say things to themselves in their head that they would never dream of saying to someone else and there's such a tendency for people to kind of go on this cycle of try to go on a diet, do it for a while, but then mess up and then binge because they figure, well, they messed up anyway, so they might as well eat whatever they want until they go back on the diet and then beat themselves up for not sticking to the diet and self-flagellate and go back on a really restrictive diet all over again and then rinse and repeat. So let's talk about this. What is the relationship, the true relationship between weight loss and self-love and what's the remedy to this vicious cycle? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great question, Katie. And I'm, you know, say it all. Maybe I should ask this question at the end. But did you resonate with the explanation I gave in the book? Did you, were you like, oh, that that kind of makes sense? Because I have a I have an opposite opinion than most people. I think most people think that if you you know you're eating, most people think you're overeating. If you're overweight, you're overeating, and I agree with that. That's true. If you're overweight, you're overeating. There are almost no exceptions to that. There are a few, but almost none. If you're overweight, you're overeating. And a lot of people think if you're overeating, you're eating to mask feelings or to stuff uh, emotions or because you don't to escape from life or because you don't love yourself or value yourself enough or because you've got deep seated psychological issues you haven't worked through or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Does that sound fair that that's kind of what a lot of people would assume? Yeah, definitely. That seems like a really common perception. Yeah. So um, what I think is that people are overeating because their brains are hijacked and our brains were designed to keep us within a certain weight range and to do it naturally. And our brains have been hijacked by the foods in our environment and our current eating, mostly our eating choices uh, in our current food environment, but also a little bit about our eating times and behaviors and stuff Um, like the grazing all day thing. 
And once the brain is hijacked, it is convinced, and we can go into the neuroscience of this if you want, Katie, but um, it is convinced that you must eat more food or you will starve. So it's kind of like your brain forcing you to breathe when you're running, breathe heavier when you're running upstairs. Um, you're not breathing heavier because you've got deep-seated psychological issues. You're breathing heavier because your brain is demanding oxygen. And there are certain functions that the brain doesn't really give you any control over. It gives you the perception of control. Like, yes, if you're running upstairs, you could try to breathe slower. And you could succeed for a hot second at that. <laughs> but you, you agree, right, that in very short order, your brain's going to take over and say, no, thank you, dear. I need more oxygen, right? And it will make you breathe harder. And, and while it does that, it's going to convince you that you're in your own voice inside your own head that you need to. That, so, for example, if you try to set a timer for two minutes and try to hold your breath for two minutes and you play a little mind game with yourself and you convince yourself that you'll get a million dollars or, you know, whatever you want most in the world or whatever, if you succeed at holding your breath for two minutes, my guess is you, is you still won't be able to do it. You won't be able to hold your breath for two minutes, no matter what good outcomes would happen if you did, even though it's only two minutes. And I ask people to try that experiment, literally try it, because it's very illustrative to hear what happens inside your own head when you convince yourself to breathe before two minutes are up. You talk yourself into it. It sounds like you inside your own head deciding, wow, this is getting hard. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this. Do I really need to do this? This is just a game anyway. There's nothing really riding on this. Maybe I'll just breathe. I think, okay, up, 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 up. Yeah, I think maybe I need to breathe. Okay, I'm going to breathe, right? It's very similar to the inner dialogue that happens when we're on a food plan and we're convincing ourselves to eat off of it. And we think that we just convinced ourselves to eat off our food plan at that party because we're out with the girls, we deserve it because it's, you know, whatever the rationale is, we think that was us doing that. And what I'm here to tell you as a neuroscientist is that no, it wasn't. That was your brain demanding food that it believes that you need to survive because it's hijacked. In the same way that your brain is going to demand oxygen, under certain conditions, your brain will be convinced that you need to, to eat more food. And that's what we've created through the current obesogenic food environment that we're living in. Now, the interesting part is, now we haven't even gotten to the crux of it yet. The crux of it is what happens when you watch yourself make that quote unquote decision over and over again. You watch yourself, presumably, theoretically, hypothetically, talk yourself into eating off your food plan. You saw yourself do it. You thought it was your voice in your head. You didn't realize it was your brain being hijacked. So now you're left holding the bag because you're left going, uh, well, and you, this is not conscious. This is subconscious. You're left now trying to connect the dots. Well, why would I keep doing my, that to myself? Why would I keep letting myself down like that? I just wrote out all my goals and had my future goal weight and I was visualizing my desired outcomes and I was, I had all my food like in the, and I, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, why would I eat off my food plan like that? Why would I do that to myself? Well, if you watch yourself betray yourself over and over again with food, you've basically got nothing left to conclude except that you don't value yourself, that you don't trust yourself, that you don't believe in yourself, that you don't want it badly enough. 
this is called self-perception theory in psychology, which is where you actually learn who you are. You come to believe things about who you are by watching your behavior. Well, you just watched yourself act against every, you know, most precious stated goal that you've got, which is this diet that you just started, which you believe so much in, and you just watched yourself talk yourself out of it for a cookie at a party or a piece of pizza on a girl's night out or whatever, right? And how do you explain that? It's the same way you'd, you would be listening to your best friend if they were, you know, backing out of an engagement to get together with you to do something for the seventh time in a row. And they were saying, I really can't go. I'm sorry. How would you how would you explain that if they're betraying you again like that for the seventh time in a row? You'd be like, well, you don't value me as a friend. You're not here for me. You don't think much of our friendship, right? Do you see how you you would have to conclude certain things about that friend if they kept doing that to you? And it's the same way with food. Your brain is hijacked, number one. It talks you into eating things. You think it's you making that decision. You watch, quote unquote, yourself make that decision. And then you're forced to come to some outrageous conclusions about your low self-esteem and your lack of self-worth. And I tell people, especially women, I tell, I tell women, I'm like, look, do you know yourself to be kind and accomplished and like a really good person in all kinds of ways? You don't have deep-seated psychological issues. You have a brain that's hijacked. So you don't need to love yourself more. You need to stop eating the foods that are hijacking your brain. Yeah. And I think to me, that's the key after reading your book and looking into your research is the free part because it's living happy, thin and free. But I think most diets, they totally neglect the free part. They don't even, it's not even on the radar. And in fact, most diets, even if they work, it's more like you get to be miserable and thin. Most people, I would think. (laughs) Um, which is not sustainable for the long term. It's just not. Whereas you basically give people a freedom that I've never seen any other diet or any diet that I've tried come anywhere close to. So can you explain from the brain's perspective how just those four bright lines can kind of flip that switch in the brain and make it so much easier? Sure. Um, Well, to do that, I first have to explain a little bit about leptin and dopamine. Should I go there to explain where the trapping is coming from and the freedom? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my listeners love the science. So go for it. Okay. So um, when I say the brain is hijacked, I mean basically three things. The willpower gap we've already explained. So we're assuming the anterior cingulate cortex is going to show up for us and help us make the right decision all the time. And it's just not. It's not capable of that. It wasn't designed for that. The second way is leptin is the hormone that we all need to have on board. Leptin is that magical hormone. I don't know if you've ever thought of this deeply, but nobody used to ever get fat, basically. Like if you, if you just go, you just rewind the clock, you know, um, 10,000 years, people were all slender, lean, basically. And what would happen is at certain times of year, there would be a glut of food. You know, all the berry bushes would be full, all the crops would be coming up, you know, the wildebeest would be running around and you'd kill a bunch of them and you had all this food and people would sit around and eat it and they would get heavy a little bit they'd put on say you know three four five pounds and um the fat cells would grow and they would release a hormone called leptin and leptin would circle back to the brain and say okay we have enough fuel on board we're done eating we're not full i mean we're not hungry we're full we're great we're done eating and now it's time to go use this fuel to ensure our future survival so let's go build a hut let's go find a mate let's go kill another wildebeest right And so leptin is the hormone that says you are full and it's time to get active, to use this fuel for some good purpose. 
And that feedback mechanism worked perfectly for all those years. What's happened today is, well, first of all, leptin was discovered in 1994. And as soon as it was discovered, the pharmaceutical companies went bonanzas and they started to put it into little pills and test it. And unfortunately, giving people leptin pills doesn't help at all. Turns out that just like you might imagine, the fatter you are, the more leptin you have because it's secreted by the fat cells as you're gaining weight. So then people started wondering, well, what's blocking all the leptin? Like it's called leptin resistance, right? What's blocking the leptin? Why isn't the brain seeing it? It's there. Why isn't it doing its job? Why isn't the brain seeing it? And the answer is that it's being blocked. It's being blocked by insulin. So that's lesson number one. We got to lower those insulin levels. Lesson number two is dopamine. Um, there's this, this phenomenon of addiction where you eat an, an addict, you eat an addictive food or you take a drug and you flood the addictive centers of the brain with dopamine. And what happens then is the, the receptors go, whoa, that was way too much stimulation. We don't need anything like that on board here. So they downregulate, they thin out which leaves you itchy and needy and without enough pleasure on board unless you're eating those addictive foods again. So this is how people get into a, you know, two to four hour cycle of eating sugar and flour all day long, essentially, is um, they get these powerful cravings on board for, you know, for this, for that, and they they don't feel right unless they have it. So um, those are the two ways that the, that the brain is, is hijacked. Dopamine downregulation, which is addiction. That's the same thing, by the way, as heroin and cocaine addiction. Same thing. Sugar and flour are as addictive as heroin and cocaine. Very literally, physiologically, in the brain, as an addiction neuroscientist, that is true. Sugar and flour are as addictive as heroin and cocaine. I promise you. And having been addicted to crack cocaine, I'm here to tell you sugar is harder to kick than crack cocaine. Just saying. So our brains are hijacked by that, and they're also hijacked by the insatiable hunger that comes from when your brain doesn't see your leptin, it, it believes you're starving. It literally believes you're physiological, physiologically starving, and it, your brain shows all the markers of physiological starvation. No wonder you can't stop eating, right? Because your brain thinks you're starving. So that's the foundation. Now, your question, Katie, was about free. So how do we get free with these bright lines? So basically, you can you can kind of feel it, right, that if you don't realize all this has happened inside your brain, trying to eat less, especially if you're like, you know, and I don't mean to pick on any particular program here because I have kind of the same opinion of all of them. But like, let's imagine that you're trying to eat, you know, points and you're you're eating like one point brownies, right? Well, you're eating the foods that keep fueling this process in your brain. So now you're trying to restrict your caloric intake while continuing to eat the same foods that are fueling the hijacking of your brain. And you're basically trying to breathe slowly while you run upstairs. You're trying to fight your brain every step of the way. It's not going to work. Your brain's going to win and it's going to create an insanity in your head in the process, the same way that you would be going insane in your head if you were doing the equivalent of trying months and years of trying to run upstairs while you breathe slowly. Like it just doesn't, you know, your brain is going to need more than that. It's going to be demanding more than that. And it's, it's, it creates like for anyone who's ever been a, you know, like, like me and you, right. If there's an insanity in your head when you're trying to like 
hold simultaneously the urge to eat more food and the restriction of like, no, I'm not going to do that. It's like it creates an insanity. It creates a, 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 a decidedly la- a decidedly uh, decided feeling of not free, right? Like I am not free. So when non-food addicts ask me, what does the free mean in happy, thin and free? I just crack up because they don't get it. They've never had it, right? They've never had the rigmarole in their head of what they've eaten or not eaten, whether they're on their plan or off their plan, whether they're going to eat a lighter lunch today because they're going to a party tonight and they're going to be, you know, wanting to overeat tonight at the party, but can they make it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Should they have a smoothie at breakfast and then skip lunch entirely? And, you know, will they use up all their points at dinner for the blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's insane. It's totally insane. So I feel like I've been talking for a long time, but you probably want me to actually get to the punchline, right? Of like, how do you, how do you, how do we get free with bright line eating? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we get free by putting up a bright line for sugar and flour and meals and quantities. And all of a sudden your food becomes clean and clear. And with a bright line for sugar and flour, your insulin levels drop immediately and fast and powerfully. And all of a sudden your brain can see your leptin. So now you're not struggling against your brain so hard. It, it now thinks you're full and it wants you to get moving. So now you're good there. And slowly your dopamine receptors start to regenerate because dopamine regeneration, dopamine downregulation is reversible. So your dopamine receptors will regenerate. So those powerful cravings that used to send you off into the night, you know, for that specific fix, right? Of that food fix or whatever, or that would leave you at a party, like facing a certain food and not able to say no to it. Those cravings start to go away. They start to fade. Eventually they go away almost entirely. And in bright line eating, we give you other supports like having you write down your food the night before and plan it the night before so that you are no longer faced with that moment of like, gee, what am I going to eat? And you're in the middle of the willpower gap, right? You already planned what you were going to eat and you've already pre-prepped some of it. And it's the easiest thing to eat is the, the right thing to eat is the easiest thing to eat in any given moment. So you put all that together and you start to like, you're, I think you're in this groove, Katie, of like, uh, this is easy. How was it all so hard all those years? Like it just clicks into the, into place where all of a sudden your brain is working for you and all the, the moxie and willpower and, you know, awesomeness that you've, you know, demonstrated in every other area of, of your life starts to show up in this area of your life. And it's like, wow, I can totally do this and I'm not feeling crazy. Like this is awesome. Yeah, exactly. And I love so much the analogy of if you're walking upstairs, you can't choose not to breathe heavier if you need air. Your body needs it, period, because I it's actually really fresh on my mind. I just got back from Switzerland um, from a health conference. And so first lesson is if someone from Switzerland ever says, do you want to go out on just a little hike? It's not a little hike. Swiss people don't do little hikes. It was 20 miles, 10 miles up a hill, 10 oh miles God. down a hill. And at altitude, oh. not being an avid hiker, I at certain points like literally could not breathe on that way up the hill. And the idea of even trying to not breathe in that situation is insane. But then I also compare it to on the way down, it's harder on your legs, but you can breathe. And it's such a big difference. And so just to me, that's kind of the analogy I think of in my head with bright lines is once you break that cycle at the top, it gets so much easier. And you still may have struggles or your knee may hurt once in a while from walking downhill. But the the will to breathe and the absolute insatiable thing, I have to breathe right now, that's gone because you're just breathing again. And it's simple. And when you talk about susceptibility, I think of 
like, yeah, people who don't understand that difference. Um, my mom, I mentioned her, but she can literally her favorite food could be on the counter. And unless she's hungry, she'll just walk by it all day. Doesn't care. Whereas other relatives in the extended family, like if there's a candy bowl, they can't not eat the entire thing. And it's just a really noticeable difference. But I wanted to circle back on one thing um, because you talked about sugar. And I know some people listening may be thinking that just applies to refined sugar. And they're thinking, as I did for a long time, well, I don't eat any refined sugar. I haven't in 10 years. But sometimes I eat maple syrup or honey or stevia or xylitol. So can you explain a little bit deeper what you mean by sugar? Yeah, Katie, that's such a great um, question. And I just want to say that uh, Switzerland sounds amazing. (laughs) Really, really nice. Um, beautiful. Yeah. So sugar is, is all forms of sugar or sweeteners that are added. So for whole fresh fruit is fine. Um, fine, wonderful, delicious. Yay. Love fruit. Um, and the fiber offsets the fructose in the fruit. That's why it, it doesn't hit the brain the same way. Um, but when you add sweetener to your food, whether it's honey, agave, any of the things you mentioned, stevia, blah, 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 there are multiple pathways by which it gets us in trouble. So I know people say, oh, no, but stevia is okay. But st- no, it's not, actually, because that extra sweetness hits the taste buds, and the taste buds have a direct connection to the addiction centers in the brain. So that will stop your dopamine receptors from regenerating. So all of those sweeteners, artificial sweeteners are some of the worst. You need to, the bright line counts for them as equ, you know equally strongly, if not more strongly. So yeah, all of the things you mentioned are not uh, part of the, the bright line eating food plan. Thanks for clarifying that. And I'd love to also talk a little bit about dietary dogmas because bright lines is very much, um, at least from my take on it, it's not anything about what to eat specifically as how to eat. You give a framework, but you don't say you must eat, you know, grilled chicken on this day, or it's not a very prescriptive thing like that. And I think people get really attached to like a food philosophy, whether it's paleo or vegetarian. There's a lot of people right now claiming that plant-based eating is the only way to maintain a healthy weight. And then if you're plant-based, you're never going to gain weight. And others saying, obviously it's paleo or trim healthy mama or whatever the case may be. So Um, But the interesting part, and I've listened to you speak before, people can still, first of all, fit these dietary dogmas into bright lines if they want to, but also people will lose weight on bright lines following the same like types of eating, not eating, for instance, any wheat if they're allergic, not eating any sugar anyway, Um, but they'll lose weight on bright lines when they wouldn't when they were just eating this prescription. So first of all, why don't you like dietary dogmas on the specifics of what to eat? And then secondly, why do you think bright lines still works within all of those frameworks? Yeah. I think, um, and it's interesting, this is a, it's a concept for a book that I'm thinking about writing uh, with a colleague of mine. But basically, the, the key here, Katie, is that people are missing the boat in thinking that when it comes to lose weight, it's about what you eat. It's just not. The, the reality is that the research is very clear that, for example, it's been tested in even metabolic ward studies, which means people are like on lockdown in a building and like every morsel of food they're given is measured, right, for a long time. They're expensive studies to do, but they've been done. And the reality is that people lose an equivalent amount of weight on, on, you know, low carb or low fat or paleo or vegan. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. They are equivalent, um, assuming the calories are equivalent, right? I, I do think that there's some truth to, you know, certain health claims, but that's a different question than a weight loss claim, right? So, you know, for example, I believe that if you eat, you know, more, more, more kale uh, than bacon, you will be healthier. Like I just think kale is a healthier food than bacon in general. Um, and I think there's good evidence for that. 
but there's no evidence to say that, you know, eating a certain food plan actually makes you lose weight better. What there is evidence for is that if you stick with a food plan, you will lose weight better. So the issue is in long-term compliance and long-term compliance is not a matter of, you know, macronutrient combinations and, you know, certain food dogmas, as you call it. It's really not. Long-term compliance is a behavioral psychology hacking issue. It also has to do with if you're eating foods you're addicted to, that's the thing about sugar is eating some today increases the odds that you'll eat some tomorrow, right? That's the issue with sugar is, and there are some foods that eating them now makes you overeat later. Artificial sweeteners is one of them. Eating artificial artificial sweeteners today results in, an, in a 50% increase in caloric intake later. So you got to watch out for certain things like that. But it's really about compliance and bright line eating with a combination of bright lines and planning, we're focused on automaticity and habits. That's the way to execute behaviors long-term in the same way that we brush our teeth, you know, morning and night without fail, without thinking about it, whether we're in a good mood or a bad mood, whether we've been out at a party late or not, you know, a lot of us are really rock star toothbrushers. Not all of us, 5% of the population is not, but most of us are can really relate to like having some automaticity around our teeth brushing. That's what we got to get with our eating. So I don't care if you want to get automaticity with eating paleo or automaticity with eating vegan or automaticity with what. I personally believe that when it comes to what you eat, there are two non-negotiables to being thin. One of them is you've got to get sugar and flour out of your system. And the other is you got to eat a lot of vegetables, vegetables, just a lot of vegetables. And if you do those two things, you don't eat sugar and flour and you eat a lot of vegetables, more produce than you think, a lot of vegetables. Then what happens is what you do around the margin, like where you get your protein sources from, how much fat you do or don't eat and what sources and blah, 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 blah. Your body absorbs that pretty well. There's a lot of flexibility in that. That's my personal philosophy. But I don't even push that on people. And I, I personally see my job as giving people back authorship and ownership and agency over what they put in their mouth. And then if they want to, they can go on a journey of eating increasingly healthier and healthier. Or they can come to Bright Line Eating and eat right away what they think is the healthiest way to eat. I think there's a lot of controversy in, in nutrition right now. And I, I, I'm agnostic to most of it, you know, all these fat and protein, you know, high carb, low carb, vegan paleo stuff. I, yeah, I'm, I'm agnostic to all that. I'm interested when the research comes out, but mostly um, it's an issue of compliance and compliance has got nothing to do with your macronutrient ratios or any of that stuff. Um, and we've hacked compliance in Brightline Eating. That's why we're so so successful. There are certain things you got to do to be able to stick with something. Right. And I think, yeah, you're doing all the things biochemically that support that. For instance, um, you talked earlier about leptin. And I am one of those geeks that reads medical journals for fun. But it seems to be like with leptin that a lot of them agree that if you don't eat between meals and give your liver time to regenerate and kind of rest between eating, which Brightline's suggest, then you help your leptin levels and cortisol levels get into a correct range. So like there's so many things, every aspect of it is very lined up with science. Obviously you have a science background, so that makes sense. But I just love that um, there's so much science that backs it up and it makes it so much easier that way. Totally. Studies are coming out every day and we're like, oh, look, that's what we do in Brightline Eating. <laughs> yeah, totally. Exactly. One thing I've personally found is you mentioned people can kind of adapt it is um, there's a lot of research on fasting for longevity and for cellular health. But obviously with bright lines, you still do want to eat. You don't want to just not eat either. Um, so what I've been doing is eating within an eight hour window. So I'm still eating three meals, but I'm 
sort of fasting 16 hours a day. I'm sleeping for a lot of that. Um, and it just seems to really help, but also just gives amazing mental clarity and all those benefits related to fasting without skipping meals, which is actually not good if you're in the you know, pregnancy or nursing or motherhood phase of life when you have all these extra demands on your body anyway. So that's just one tip I throw out there. But let's talk a little bit more about vegetables because I 100% agree with you. And I often say like, even if you're a meat eater, you should still be eating more vegetables than a vegetarian. Like (laughs) no matter what your dogma is, eat vegetables. Everyone agrees on that. But why do you think, what's the mechanism? Why are the vegetables so important? Good question. Um, I think most people think it's about fiber and um, and nutrients like vitamins and minerals. And um, what it turns and, and those are important things. I'm not just, I'm not saying that those aren't. I think fiber is super important. There's obviously a huge literature on that, and I I'm a fan of nutrients. <laughs> That's great. But what's interesting, Katie, is that there's another line of research that people don't know as much about, which shows that the primary benefit of produce is actually in uh, its hormetic stress on the body, the actual phytotoxins in vegetables. So, So stick with me here. It turns out that the healthiest things you can do for your body involve exposing it to micro stressors. Like, for example, consider exercise. Exercise actually weakens you temporarily. It exhausts you and it depletes your resources. Um, it puts, leaves you in a weakened state. And it's a stressor on your body, especially if you're doing resistance training and you're tearing muscles and like it's hard on the body. But what the body does, it kicks the body into a mode of growing stronger, right? And then you give your body, you know, 24, 48 hours of rest and nutrition and your body takes that exercise session and it literally become stronger and better and healthier for it. That's called hormesis, the process by which stressors on the body make the body adapt and become stronger. And exercise isn't the only hormetic stressor. There's also cold and heat and um, asphyxia, like oxygen deprivation, like at altitude, or if you just hold your breath a bunch, there's all kinds of hormetic stressors, right? And it turns out that the phytotoxins in vegetables and, and certain fruits are act as hormetic stressors. So they get into our body, the body sees them as toxins, but we co-evolved with those fruits and vegetables to benefit from them, to benefit from those toxins. And all of a sudden the body is adapting and changing and becoming stronger on the cellular level. So that's actually the biggest benefit from vegetables, believe it or not, is their toxins. Crazy, right? Yeah, super fascinating though. Yeah. Hormesis is a trip. When you start learning about hormesis, and I love how you're using that nice long fasting window. I'm doing that a lot too. Like I'll sometimes eat my dinner at like two and I'm done for the day. You know, no more food. It's it's amazing when you start getting into circadian rhythm science and fasting science and hormesis and all that stuff. Oh my gosh. I feel like we could do a whole nother podcast one day just on that. But I, I want to also address an objection that I know I'm going to get because I recently posted a picture on Instagram with just a write-up about how I think really no one should be eating sugar, period, including, you know, anyone. Like, it's not a moderation type thing. And I had all these people get mad at me, especially the, <laughs> like, intuitive eating crowd. Yeah. You know, everything in moderation. This is an extreme view. You're going to create eating disorders. What about, you know, a lot of diets recommend cheat days, and those are totally fine, or a little bit of sugar in moderation. And I think most people listening, if they understand what you've been saying, can probably understand the answer to that. But what is the specific answer to the why we can't just do everything in moderation these days? Well, I don't know if I have the same answer as you on this, Katie. I I don't think Brightline Eating is for everybody. Um, I think some people can do moderation 
And I wish I were one of them. Not really anymore because I'm pretty happy being me. But, you know, gee, it'd be nice to be able to eat a cookie <laughs> and not want another one like my husband. But I know that for in my estimation, about two thirds of the population, it's not going to be a long term um, path that will include being healthy and in a right sized body and as happy as they could be and things like that. Um, I think there are people for whom that really does work. And so I'm a big fan of do what gives you peace and do what makes you feel free and do what leads to your health and your well-being. And then my path is not for everybody at all. But I do know that a lot more people would be empowered by a bright line for sugar and a bright line for flour than realize it. And a lot more people would be stunned by how liberating it is, liberating and freeing to actually adopt a complete bright line than to try to keep making exceptions for holidays and special occasions and all that stuff, then realize it. A lot of people don't realize how freeing it is to actually just quit something and then just make it part of your identity that you don't eat that. Because then you're not always wondering, will I, won't I, is this the time to have an exception, is that not? You, you just make the decision once and for all, you move on, you do what it takes to adapt to that decision, like quitting smoking. You know, you, you change your identity to be a non-smoker. Like that's who you are. And all of a sudden, before long, the problem has been completely removed. It's just not even in your universe anymore. So, I, yeah, I don't think everyone needs to quit sugar personally, but I think way more people would be served by it than realize it for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And the converse would be, I guess, that those intuitive eaters, that's wonderful that it works for them, but they also can't assume conversely that their method's going to work for someone who has a really high food susceptibility because it's just like it's like the brain oxygen thing. It's just not going to work for someone who is there. Exactly. Exactly. And that's such a critical point. Like we need and I think we were there with alcohol. Right. If someone says on New Year's Eve, no, thanks, I don't drink to the champagne. I hope and I trust that these days people aren't going to be saying, come on, it's New Year's Eve. You need to drink with us, you know. Um, but you're right that on Thanksgiving, if you try to say no thank you to pumpkin pie because you don't eat sugar, you will get a lot of hazing for that, a lot of pushback and a lot of shaming and a lot of harassment. Um, so I agree that the folks who want to keep eating sugar and find that it works for them, you know, it'd be great if we could, you know, get to a point where we understand the susceptibility scale and realize that that's not going to be a workable strategy for everybody. Food is not a one size fits all thing. There's a lot of different ways to crack the food nut. Um, and bright line eating is one of them. And it works for a lot of people. But it's not the only way. And their way isn't the only way. And I tried intuitive eating so hard. I went, I went into that and really tried it. It does not work for me. It does not. I do not reach my stopping point often enough to keep my, you know, to be sane and in a right size body. It makes me crazy to try to do intuitive eating. I cannot do it. And, you know, it would be nice if the type of brain that I have got equal respect. <laughs> yeah. Well, and another thing people may be wondering is, can the brain heal? I know that, that like with the science of addiction, there's a lot of research here. If a person does this for long enough, does the brain ever heal? Or has someone who these kind of pathways have opened, are they always going to be there? Oh, so at first, I didn't understand your question at first because I was going to say, yeah, the brain heals. Like I already told you, those dopamine receptors regenerate. But I see what you're saying. Like, could someone go back to being a normal eater after they've been high on the susceptibility scale? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Like once you've kind of lost the weight and gotten to that point, I know a lot of people may be wondering, well, then can't you just eat intuitively or eat paleo or whatever the, the method may be? 
So the answer is probably no, unfortunately. And I've tried this. I had uh, six six years-ish without taking a single bite off my Brightline eating plan and then decided to try to go be an intuitive eater because my third daughter was born and she was nine months old. And I have three daughters. I have twins who at that time were like three and my baby girl was nine months. And I just, I didn't want to be weighing and measuring my food in front of them. And I just thought, you know, I want to just eat whatever food I put on the table for them. I don't want to be eating differently. And, you know... So I tried. And what happened was I very quickly, it took about two and a half months, I think, to to reach the point where like my life was spiraling out of control and the, you know, will I, won't I, am I going to eat this? Am I going to eat that? Am I, like I said, am I going to eat less lunch for food at lunch? Cause I'm going to go to a party tonight at dinner. And am I, am I going to make an exception here? And, you know, shoot, I tried the ice cream last night, but I couldn't stop eating it. Now I need to not eat today. Cause I don't want to gain too much weight. I was willing to gain some weight, but not too much. I didn't want to have to buy a whole new closet full of clothes. You know, it did not work. And so here's the neuroscience of it, Katie. Um, the neuroscience is there are, first of all, there's several lines of research. I mean, several entire bodies of research in different domains that demonstrate in a variety of ways that once the brain has developed a certain behavior pattern, a certain tendency, a certain learning, it never can unlearn it. It just doesn't. You can make the outward behavior go dormant, but the brain still knows, the brain still remembers, and you're still someone who's eminently capable of that old behavior in the way that someone who never behaved like that just isn't. So let me give you two good examples. Somebody, you know, speaks French um, until they're five and then they move to America. They never speak French again for the rest of their life. Now they're 80 years old. Um, you expose them to French and they speak it fluently within a week. Like just boom, it's right there. They haven't had any interaction with French in 75 years and they're, they're natively fluent within a week. That's one example. Another example is Pavlov's dogs, right? You take Pavlov, you take a dog and you expose him to meat and to a bell at the same time. And he salivates and he eats the meat, all's well. And you do that, say, 25 times. You pair the meat with the bell. And now, after 25 trials, the dog's trained up and you ring the bell and the dog salivates, okay? You can make that salivation go extinct by giving your five-year-old access to the bell and having her run around the dog and ring it willy-nilly all the time with never any meat in sight. And eventually the dog learns that the gig is up and no meat is coming and the bell doesn't mean meat anymore. And the dog will stop salivating to the meat completely. No, no more salivation. You can ring that bell all day, any, anytime, anywhere, and it will not salivate. Now, you take that same dog and you ring the bell and present meat. And this time it takes two trials to train that dog up to be a full salivator to that bell instead of 25 trials. So what that means is that if you have certain um, dysfunctional, addictive, unhealthy, emotional, whatever patterns around food, and you do a lot of healing work, you do a lot of bright line eating, you do a lot of whatever you do and change your path, you are still eligible to be that insane eater again within a hot second if you stop doing the things that got you well in the first place. It's like a dry riverbed. You know, you, you've, got, you've got water and it, it grooves a riverbed. You can divert the water upstream. This is the neurological analogy. This is, you know, the electricity in the brain is it forms rivers through fiber tracks in the brain. You can divert the water upstream and make that riverbed run dry, but it's still going to be there. It's just a dry riverbed now. Yeah, some shrubs will grow in it and stuff, but you let some neural activity back to, down that old path, those shrubs 
wash away real quick and you've got a roaring river before you know it. So take it from someone who's been there trying to go back to an old addictive pattern. Once, once your brain is cooked, it's cooked. Unfortunately, you can't, you can't turn up, what do you call it? You can't turn a pickle back into a cucumber. You just can't. Once your brain is pickled, it's pickled. Yeah. It's an interesting analogy. And it, it reminds me of a few months ago, my husband had surgery and he had to have an umbilical hernia repaired that was a result actually of a previous surgery. And after a lot of research, we decided instead of general, he just wanted to do IV sedation, but also really heavy local. And this was at the recommendation of a doctor friend of ours who said the local actually prevents those pain pathways from opening in the first place. Whereas if you're under general, they open, you just don't feel them because you're asleep. But if you prevent them from opening in the first place, it actually keeps the pain down afterwards. Whereas if you go through general and those pathways are open, you're going to still feel that pain more after because those are the nerves or whatever the pain pathways have been connected to the brain and they're already primed for that. So I kind of relate it. There's a very biological method there um, and super fascinating, maybe discouraging, although I will say from experience, I truly don't miss, I didn't really eat flour to begin with, but I don't miss sugar at all, even natural sweeteners. So it's not like you're living in a constant state of like, oh my gosh, I can never eat cake again or whatever. Like it really is a freedom. And I don't think you can understand that until you actually get there. But I want to talk about the results because you've shared some with me. There's some results in the book. And then you also did a talk that really delved into the results. But it's really, I mean, astounding the results people have on Bright Lines. So what are you seeing in people who follow this method over the long term? Katie, yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, this is the most successful weight loss program on planet Earth by far. No comparison. And we have a pretty extensive research program that goes along with the Bright Line Eating Bootcamp that we offer and the ongoing follow-up surveys and stuff that we send out and everything. And um, yeah, we find that people are getting down to goal weight and maintaining it like on no other program. I mean, there's nothing out there that's even close. I mean, I think I calculated at one point that someone's, um, if they do Bright Line Eating as, as, comp as compared with the, you know, any of the best of the other available commercial weight loss programs, they're two, if they do bright line eating, they're 280 times more likely to get down to goal weight and stay there than on any other program. It's ridiculous. And so, yeah, I mean, people in, in a, on a commercial weight loss program, uh, weight loss happens in the first six months typically, and weight regain starts after six months. Um, we have people continuing to lose weight on average, you know, like I forget, 84% of people keep progressing, keep their weight off. You know, it's just, it's just, remarkable. Yeah. And you have all kinds of stories from people on your website. I will link to a few of those because I know they're really inspiring for people to read, especially if um, somebody's considering it and it's kind of that whole, but I don't want to give up sugar phase. Um, yeah, I think right? that can be really encouraging. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me mention them because I have been using and loving and Instagramming their products for years. They have an amazing instant mushroom coffee. Hear me out before you think it's weird. I know mushroom coffee doesn't sound good. It's not only the best instant coffee I've ever tried. It's also pretty high up on the list of best coffee I've tried. It's cheaper than coffee shop coffee and it's so convenient because it's so portable and it tastes so much better. But it isn't just ordinary coffee. It has superfood mushrooms like lion's mane, cordyceps, and chaga mushrooms. 
And these mushrooms have some big health benefits and especially immune benefits. I personally especially love them for the energy and the mental clarity without the jitters from traditional coffee. And did I mention how good it tastes? So I always take these instant coffee packets with me when I travel and I also always drink it at home these days now that they have a big tin that lasts about a month so I don't have to open a little packet every day. Some friends of ours recently traveled for three months carrying only the backpacks on their backs and they brought an entire three month supply of this instant coffee in their bag that had limited space. In other words, this coffee beat out a pair of jeans for how important it was to make it in the bag. It's that good. And of course, if you aren't a caffeine person, they also have a variety of mushroom teas and other products that don't have the coffee. So you can get the benefits without the caffeine. And I love them so much that I reached out and they agreed to give a discount to my listeners. So go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness mama to get 10% off. That's foursigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellness mama. This episode is sponsored by Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. If you love the benefits of bone broth, but don't love the time it takes to make and how tough it can be to find quality bones to make broth, Kettle and Fire is for you. Their bone broth is a regular staple in my kitchen these days, and it's what I use to create the recipes in my new bone broth ebook. So they only use bones from 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones or antibiotics. Their broth is also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. You can find them at many Whole Foods on the West Coast, and you can also order online and get a discount at kettleandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. Again, that's kettleandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. Um, Well, you do a lot of research, but you also talk about the research that you hope that we're going to see in the future related to obesity and weight loss. So what do you think we're lacking currently in research and what do you hope we see in the future? Well, we're lacking research designed by people who understand anything about food addiction, unfortunately. So some really interesting, obvious studies haven't been done. And I I have a new appointment, relatively new, uh, at the University of Rochester and stuff. And right now I'm so focused on serving the the ridiculously rapidly growing movement of bright line eating that it's very hard to, you know, engage in uh, a bunch of uh, the research that I would like to do as well. But that's what the Institute for Sustainable Weight Loss is for. So anyway, so some of the research that needs to be done is, well, first of all, it'd be great to just demonstrate the regeneration of the dopamine receptors and the nucleus accumbens after people stop eating sugar and flour. It's been demonstrated in rats and stuff. It takes about three weeks, but I really want to see that with fMRI in humans. So to just to watch the progression of those dopamine receptors regenerating, because we really don't have any hard evidence on exactly how long it takes. I have a sense in my gut from just knowing you know, when people start to experience their cravings fade away, right? Other research is just more more research on this the long-term sustainability um, of what we're doing because Brightline Eating is only two years old, so we don't have long-term data yet. I mean, I guess it's coming up on three years old since we started our first boot camp. Um, so the first cohort of people ended the first boot camp in at the end of the year of 2014, but we didn't start our, our research program in the form that it exists now for another year. So um, basically, the people in our research program have only been there for like a year and a half. So we have very relatively short-term data. We're, tra- we're going to track these people for 10, 20 years and beyond. So just demonstrating 
the sustainability. I'm also partnering with a woman named Catherine Lively at Dartmouth, and she does uh, research on um, identity change. So this is really interesting. How does your identity change when you go from obese to slender? It's a big shift. Like that's a different way to walk around in the world, for sure. Anyone who's been, you know, obese can tell you whether they've been slender or not. Like it's, that's a, that's a big shift. And we're going to be looking systematically at the identity shift that happens um, through bright line eating and through sustained weight loss. We also, so here's the most important thing, I think. This, this is what I'm most excited about is there's a lot of research showing that when you lose weight, your body registers the starvation event, essentially, the caloric deprivation, and changes certain things in your physiology to guarantee that you'll gain back the weight, essentially. It, it, it shifts your leptin, gastric inhibitory peptide, peptide YY, GLP-1, cytocystokinin, pancreatic polypeptide, amylin, all these different hormones that govern your body fat set point and your, uh, your hunger levels, your satiety levels, all that. And what we want to do is it's already been done with other diets to demonstrate, look, when you lose weight, your body starts working against you essentially from that point on to make you gain the weight back. But we're not seeing that with bright line eating, not on average. We certainly have some weight regain, of course. I mean, the weight regain in the normal population is close to 100%. In bright line eating, we have some weight regain. But why not more? And what's the difference? What is What are we... What are we doing that's keeping people's metabolic and hormonal systems, their endocrinological systems, from fighting against them to make them regain that weight, right? So just a simple thing would be a blood draw before and after weight loss to show, look, you know, um, normal, healthy, leptin, ghrelin, neuropeptide, YY, et cetera, et cetera, um, levels, you know. Um, So those are some examples of the research that I want to do. And that I want to see done. I don't care who does it. I just want it done. Yeah, I'd be so fascinated to see that. And I also just wanted to clarify for people too. I'll, like I said, I'll link to the results. But when you talk about people having sustained weight loss, um, you're not just talking about people lost like 10 pounds and kept it off. Some of these people have lost like over half their body weight or gone from oh, yeah. like two or 300 pounds or up down to like a healthy weight of like 120 something. Yeah. Um, it's a really drastic change and they're keeping it off. I know you have a couple examples of people who have done this for a couple of years now. Yeah. So it really is staggering. It's amazing. Yeah, totally. People who, yeah, have lost 200 pounds, people who've lost 100, 150 pounds, and now they're slender. They're not less fat, which is what you can expect if you do gastric bypass surgery, is to hopefully be less fat and still, on average, obese. The average gastric bypass patient at the end of the surgery, after all is said and done, is still morbidly obese. Um, Our people get slender. They get into a right-sized body. It's totally a different game. And they don't have to reroute their stomachs and keep their bodies from digesting vegetables and stuff to do it. Yeah, it's awesome. And also, it, it seems like all their testimonials, like their main thing is like, yeah, that's great. I lost all this weight, but I also just feel at peace. Like there's a calmness that does not seem to come with long-term dieting um, in other places. So I love that. Right. And like people feeling, people reporting things like low, very low hunger levels, no craving levels, little to no cravings at all, that their peace has gone up with their food, that their eating feels easy now. Like these are not things you typically see from dieters. Like what you normally see when someone starts a diet is that they get hungrier, they get less peaceful with food, they get more crazy with food, more obsessed with food. And that's not what we see in Brightline Eating. People report this peace that you talk about, Katie, that you've got now. 
Um, and, and they all say it's not really about the food. It's not about the food. It's not about the weight. This is a way of life. Yeah, it's awesome. And I'd love if you have a couple seconds to go through. When I told people I was interviewing you, they sent me a few specific questions like, oh, can you please ask her this? I've been trying to find an answer to this. So do you have time for a few rapid fire questions? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So the first one, someone asked, what about when it comes to kids? Can kids do bright lines? Why or why not? And at what age is it okay time for them to start? Um, This is a tricky one. Kind of no, but maybe and maybe yes. <laughs> so let me explain. Um, I really believe that bright line eating is not a program for people who need it. It's a program for people who want it and who are willing to do it. And so if your kid is clamoring to do bright line eating, and I would make, I would wait until they're really clamoring, like begging, they're sure, like you've explained to them, this is, you know, this is normally a grown up choice. You know what I mean? I do not recommend in general that kids do bright line eating. Um, and I certainly don't recommend that it be imposed by their parents. I think that the best thing is to preserve the possibility for intuitive eating for the kids to listen to their bodies. And the best way you can do that is to provide meals at meal times, serve foods that you feel good about, then be completely hands off about whether and how much they eat so that they're just listening to their bodies about how much to eat and just go with that would be my recommendation. Um, so if you don't feel good about serving sugar and flour, don't serve them. And make sure that your kids are eating meals, you know, sitting down at the table with you and then don't bug them about eating their vegetables or not or taking a bite of everything or finishing their plates like hands off. Once you've put the food on the table, your job ends and let your kids just eat until they get distracted and don't want to eat anymore. Right. Um, that's what I would recommend. If you have a kid with a bad weight problem who really wants to do bright line eating to solve that, then with the um, understanding and support of their pediatrician, I would say a begrudging like, okay, but in general, I think this is a choice for grownups to make for themselves. Gotcha. So, but if someone has, for instance, like an older teenager who is capable of doing it on their own and who makes that choice, that would be yeah. an acceptable adult type decision, but like you don't want to enforce this on a five-year-old basically. Yeah. Or I don't want to enforce it on anybody who's not choosing it for themselves. But yes, if there's an older, if there's a teenager who wants to make that choice, we've had even... We've, we had a 12-year-old 12 12-year-old 12 and 15-year-old boys in Bright Line Eating who did it with their dad, um, and it seemed to work out really well. Um, now, keep in mind that any kind of diet, and I don't know if you want to call Bright Line Eating a diet, but any kind of diet in adolescence sets someone up for a lifetime of weight struggles. So unless they're already overweight, um, I would not start on, I, I, especially girls, I would avoid any kind of food monkeying around like the plague. Like just, just tell them, honey, just, just eat. It's fine. It's just food. Like try to like really minimize food, focus, food, whatever, just like, you know, but, but I get that kids unfortunately are being raised in this environment and by teenagerhood, they can already be pretty far off the track. So I get that, that there can be the desire for a solution there, both for the kids and the parents. So yeah, with the, with the, with the assent of the pediatrician and the support of the pediatrician, I think that's, that's okay. Got it. Okay. Another question is obviously from someone who's already doing bright lines. They said, as long as meals are planned the night before and fit the rules, can they be rearranged within the day? For instance, can the breakfast template be used at dinner and vice versa for someone who feels better with carbs at night for adrenal reasons? Absolutely. So the food plan is very malleable that way. And the categories and quantities of food are, are super flexible. Um, I recommend for the sake of automaticity, changing that food plan once and then leaving it so that you're not deciding each day, like, 
do I, you know, where do I want my grain today? <laughs> you know, breakfast or dinner? No, it's like, if you want it at dinner, put it at dinner and then leave it there. And then at, that's an equally good choice. There's no, nothing sacrosanct about the specific categories and quantities of food being the way they are, except that it tends to work for a lot of people. And experience has shown that. So we tend to leave it alone. But that's a perfectly good reason to move your grain from, from breakfast to dinner. Yes. Very cool. Another one definitely from someone who's already doing Brightline. For the breakfast template of a starch plus fruit plus protein, can a person choose a vegetable like cucumber in place of the fruit if they're tired of fruit or just want to choose a veggie? Sure. Produce is produce. Okay. Perfect. And someone else asked, how can people avoid triggers and social cues to eat when they're everywhere? It takes a lot of support. I mean, basically starting to do Brightline eating is like uh, starting a process of breaking those cue response associations. So you've got to basically build up habits now of not responding to those cues to eat the way you used to. And to do that takes a lot of consciousness and it takes a lot of support. So the first thing is you got to be planning your food the night before so that you know what you're eating and it's not that stuff, <laughs> right? And but you, So you can be thinking to yourself, this is not my food. I've got a delicious meal. It's either packed in the car, I'm going to eat it, you know, or I just ate it and now I'm at this party and I'm not going to eat anything here because I already ate my dinner. So you've got to be really clear on what your food is and support yourself by having it prepared. And then you use support. So you text a buddy and you say, hey, I'm at this party and there's a lot of pizza and beer around and I'm not having any of it. Thanks for supporting me. Or you go into the bath. There's five strategies that research shows replenish willpower in the moment. One is social connection. So again, text a buddy, call a friend, whatever. Another is prayer. You know, ask God for help. Ask God to remove that thought. Another is meditation. So go into the bathroom and, you know, get out an app or just sit, you know, on the side of the tub and take 10 deep breaths or whatever. Another is gratitude. So think about what you're grateful for or whip out your smartphone and make a list of what you're grateful for. And another is service. So find a way to get out of yourself. Notice someone who's sitting alone and go talk to them. Make a game with yourself that you're going to meet three new people and find out, you know, three interesting things about them and that you're going to remember it on the way home. So you're going to quiz yourself. So you have to be paying attention. Um, get out of yourself. So those those are some of the strategies that I recommend. Our app, the, the Brightline Eating Daily Companion, which is in beta testing now, and we'll be rolling out really soon, um, walks you through all that. It's called an emergency action plan. <laughs> and it, it helps you when you're in a clutch situation like that. I love it. And those things are so good for any aspect of life, having more gratitude and prayer meditation, all those things are awesome anyway. Um, somebody else asked, and you may need to preface explaining the exercise or no exercise portion of Bright Lines, but they said, why no exercise? What if people have a specific goal unrelated to weight loss, like being able to run a race with a friend or lift a certain amount for a competition? Is exercise okay then? Well, it really depends. If you're really trying to lose weight, the, the research shows that you will decrease your odds of getting to your goal if you exercise during the weight loss phase. Um, and the reason is that exercise is a powerful willpower depleter. It just is. You can't get around that. And you are. it also triggers a compensation effect, which is your brain starts to trick you into making exceptions to your food plan and the automaticity that you're trying to build up in, that, in those early days of your food plan will unravel. So people are it's, this exercise piece is a big reason why people aren't hitting their weight loss goals is because they're assuming they, they need to do diet and exercise at the same time. Now, all that said, exercise is super healthy, and I, I want people to get back to it as soon as their bright lines are automatic. Like, so a few months in, I want them to get right back to exercise. 
And, you know, of course I'm a fan of goals like that. Like I have those myself. I want to be able to do a pull-up and I'm working hard toward it. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever succeed because I'm pretty far from it, but I'm working at it and et cetera, et cetera. Right. So the challenge is that it, it really is better in the initial phase of the weight loss plan while you're setting up your habits and letting them become automatic to not exercise because the cutting of corners that happens when you're exercising as well, it's just a, it's a plate that's too full. It's, it's more than the brain can handle. And I know people think they're, they're, uh, you know, Wonder Woman and everything, but really, um, you know, this is why people are sabotaged and they're not achieving their goals. That's good to know. So basically once it's not no exercise forever, it's just until the cravings are gone and the stress is gone and you've got all that stuff dialed in. And I would assume also this doesn't mean like it's not good to go for walks with friends if you are enjoying that and not seeing it as exercise or not swim with your kids because it could be exercise, but not like having a structured exercise plan that's causing you stress. Is that kind of the, the right gist? Yeah, that's the idea. So if it happens incidentally, if it's activity that happens incidentally that you're not psyching yourself up for or whatever, then that, that totally doesn't count as exercise. It's not, that's not willpower depleting. It's the, but, but see, it's interesting because even if it's mild, if like, let's say someone says, but what if I wanted to go for a walk? And I'm like, well, are you going to schedule that four times a week and then have to psych yourself up for your walk that day? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, then don't do that. That's, that's depleting your willpower right there. Got it. That's so contrary to conventional wisdom of, you know, like go to the gym and kill yourself five days a week if you want to lose weight. And I will say this is an anecdotal evidence as well. So I mentioned I was in Switzerland and did this crazy super long hike. And ironically, after the hike, we had basically shortened our eating window. Like I said, I do every day, but um, couldn't eat after 2 p.m. because of some liver testing we were doing. So we essentially hiked like 20 miles and couldn't eat. And I was totally fine. No cravings. No like, oh my gosh, I need sugar. None of that totally fine. Just wanted water. So I think that may be the key. And I was curious myself, like once it's that automatic, like can someone exercise for fun without a problem? Totally. And I'm a big fan. Exercise as much as you want at that point. Go train for a triathlon. I mean, you do need to uh, watch a little bit because the you're, you got to make sure you're fueling your body enough at that point. And a lot of people, I think on Brightline Eating get hesitant to add as much food as they would need to do that. But yeah, there's no restrictions on activity of any kind once your eating is dialed in. Awesome. And I'm hoping people listening, I, I would guess a lot of them are wanting to find out more and wanting to try it. Um, and I will, in the show notes of this, share some of my own story as well. Just, I feel like with all the kids and the thyroid disease, I had kind of really struggled with my weight for years and was super frustrated and kind of at the point of giving up when I found your book and kind of was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it as it's written. I'm not going to overanalyze because I'm a researcher too and I have a tendency to do that and like, well, what about this? And should I add in this? I'm just going to do it and not think about it and just take a deep breath and trust the system. And it's worked. And so I know if anyone's listening and they're kind of in that place, hopefully Bright Lines will be a, an answer for them as well. But how can people try it and where to start? Of course, I'll have links in the show notes, but um, where would you recommend someone start? Um, I would recommend that someone go to our website, which is brightlineeating.com and click on the link that says get started. And right at the top, there's going to be information about the 14-day challenge. And I would recommend that they do that 14-day challenge. It's a super low investment and the stakes are really low because, you know, you can do anything for 14 days. And it'll also give you an option if you want to try out the boot camp, which is our full program that's producing all the success that we talked about and everything. And so they'll get that option too if they try the 14-day challenge. So, you know, it's like a tiny, tiny commitment with like an option to do more if you like it. 
Yeah, I love it. And if you don't, like if you try it for two weeks, you haven't lost anything. Even if you decide it's not working or it's not for you, that's, I think, the key. It's not, like you said, it's not like gastric bypass or something serious where it's kind of irreversible at that point. It's something that you can easily try. And the worst that happens is you ate more vegetables for two weeks and it's still a win. So I'll have those links in the show notes. But Susan, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I could talk to you all day and we'll have to do a round two if there's a lot more questions. I would love that, Katie, so much. Thank you so much. I just adore you. It was so nice to be here with you and your tribe. Oh my gosh. Thank you for being here. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time on the Healthy Moms podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.